Our scripture is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, 14 through 30. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples in your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I want you to imagine this morning that you are a military general. Maybe you're a general on an ancient battlefield with horses, swords, and spears. Or maybe you're a commander of a modern force with tanks and fighter jets. Or maybe you're even from the future and you're the admiral of a space fleet with laser cannons. Whatever era you hail from, this morning, you're a general. Now imagine that as you are in the midst of preparing your battle plans to strike against the enemy, a trusted lieutenant comes to you with disturbing news. One of your high-ranking officers was seen sneaking back from enemy lines. Everything indicates that he's a spy ready to leak your plans to the enemy. What would you do? Any suggestions as to what you would do? What would you do, Nathan? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, our impulse would be to get that guy to arrest him 
what if we might do something else? What if we could do something that might just win us the war? Instead of arresting the guy, instead of hiding our battle plans, we could invite this spy into our headquarters to get his opinion on the plans that you've put together. And as soon as he left, you could throw those plans in the waste can and proceed to strike the enemy where he wouldn't see you coming. He'd be blind because his eyes would be fixed on where that traitor would tell him, tell them you'd be. While you don't like disloyalty in your ranks, this is the best strategy you could have asked for. Because the outcome will be you will win the war. Now this sort of situation doesn't perfectly compare to the situation of Jesus. But I think it has just enough in common with it to help us understand why Jesus doesn't just toss Judas out from among his inner circle of disciples. Last week, we read about how the disciples complained when a woman anointed Jesus with costly oil. And the Gospel of John tells us that Judas was the primary instigator because he enjoyed pocketing some of the group's money for himself. Judas loved him some money. Matthew shows us the kind of man that Judas is in verses 14 through 16. You'll recall that in Matthew 10, Judas is among those disciples that Jesus selects to be among the twelve. And yet, here in verses 14 through 16, we find Jesus, Judas rather, selling Jesus out. It's kind of a striking turn of events. And yet, Jesus is not blindsided by what Judas is doing here. It's interesting, you go to the Gospel of John, you look at verses 66 through 71, and it says there, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus follows up with this. That sounds great. Okay, Peter's loyal. But then he follows up with this comment. And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And John inserts a little commentary here. He says, He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. So Jesus saw this coming from a long way off. He knew Judas was bad. And it's interesting because what the scriptures indicate is that this was to fulfill prophecies that were given long before. In Acts 1.16, this is what Peter says. He says, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. So it makes you wonder, you know, how, in what ways did the prophets anticipate Judas? Well, there's some other scriptures we're going to look at, but one primary one that, um, that the apostles look to and that Jesus looks to is Psalm 
41.9, where David writes, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. So anticipating this betrayal of the Messiah. And this is what Jesus says when, in John 17, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying. He says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So there's nothing accidental about Judas. It's not like Jesus selected these 12. It's like, oops, got a raw egg in the bunch. No, that was, this was how things were to play out from the beginning of time, as God had ordained that we would be redeemed through Jesus Christ. And so, as expected, Judas does betray Jesus. He goes to the high priest, and in keeping with his character in verse 15, we see that he says, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? He's just a brazen capitalist. How much is, how much is Jesus worth to you? Let's strike a deal here. Well, it appears, though, that Judas actually wasn't that great at bargaining. Maybe he was a little bit intimidated by the high priest. Maybe he didn't have a very high view of Jesus. It's kind of tough to know because the wages that he accepts are not really that much, 30 pieces of silver. And it was difficult, you know, when I was doing some research on this, it was difficult to pin down how much that amount of money really represents, but I've seen anywhere from a range of $90 to $3,000. And honestly, even if it's $3,000, that's really not that much when you consider, I mean, you would think you'd be able to fetch a good amount of money for, for Jesus, for this person that is driving the religious leaders nuts. So it doesn't appear like Judas really drove a hard bargain. Maybe he was just so thirsty for money, he just took whatever they would offer him. But what's really interesting about this wage that he receives of 30 pieces of silver is that we do see it anticipated in the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, the the prophet Zechariah is um, directed by God to act out um, kind of a symbolic play of his relationship with the people of Israel. And so we see Zechariah acting kind of as the primary actor here, but we see how it's filled out later by Jesus and what happens here with Judas. So in Zechariah 11, verses 11 through 13, it says, It was revoked on that day, and so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I told them, If you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. So even from this text, you kind of get the sense like 30 pieces of silver, like that's all I'm worth to you. Just throw it to the the potter at the house of the Lord. And I was trying to get a sense of what that exactly meant. It was suggested that maybe there were some um, pottery makers working in the temple. And so it's just like, just throw it to them. Like this isn't worth very much. And what's interesting is you go back even further in the Old Testament in Exodus 21:32 and says that 30 shekels of silver 
is the price to be paid if someone killed another man's slave. So it's it's not it's it's a very it's not a really huge sum of money, and it's it's suggesting that not only is the profit not valued highly by the people, but it's indicating that as he's acting as God's representative, kind of his emissary, that the, God, that the people of Israel being are dismissive of their God. And so we're seeing Zechariah play this role as a, uh, as a prophet shepherd, and now Jesus is revealed as being the authentic shepherd. And this is kind of how things play out um, between Jesus and a lot of these prophecies that we see in the Old Testament. Because very often they're given and, and there's an immediate application you know, within the lifetime of the prophets or maybe a couple hundred years out where you can say, okay, it's fulfilling something more directly. That we, and yet, when we get to Jesus, we see a line of connection drawn between these prophecies. And the best way that I could try to, I guess I would try to explain how it is that these prophecies apply to Jesus is that it's, it's as though that Jesus is the real deal that brings these, these prophecies to their complete and fullest fulfillment. It's almost like these prophets are kind of like a cover band playing like the Beatles' greatest hits. And, you know, the Beatles write pretty good music as it is, so it'd sound all right and it'd have purchase even as you're listening to it now. But how much greater is it when the, Be- the actual Beatles play their own songs? And this is kind of what I, I see playing out with Jesus. It's like you have all these prophecies that are pointed to Jesus, and they're great as, as they stand. But once Jesus comes along, you finally have the fullness of those prophecies revealed. And so what this, this prophecy is, how it ties together with Jesus is just like Zechariah, Jesus is sold out. And the high priests acting as kind of the representatives of the people of Israel are once again rejecting their God, literally God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So Judas, Judas does his dirty business and returns to the disciples. And in verses 17 through 19, Jesus gives the disciples instructions as to how they will celebrate the Passover. And it said that this happens on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. And this was a festival um, celebrating the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. We go to Exodus 12, verses 17 through 18. Um, the, The people of Israel are instructed, Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast. That's what unleavened means, bread made without yeast. From the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. So you have this, feast, this festival of unleavened bread. And it's during this festival of unleavened bread that you celebrate the Passover feast. Sometimes it's tough to keep all these festivals and feasts sorted out, but that's what's going on. You have this festival that's going on, and in the midst of the festival you have the Passover feast. Now, many of us here are familiar with what the Passover is, um, but I thought it worth for some, for some of us who are less familiar to actually kind of look at what is the Passover. So um, God had sent 
um, nine plagues upon Egypt because God had instructed Moses to lead uh, his people out of Egypt and told Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. He was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so God struck him again and again and again. And finally he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike you with, this, with, with death upon your firstborn. This is really significant. We're not going to get into all of that. Um, but God intended to protect his people from this death that he was going to bring upon the Egyptians. And this is accomplished through the Passover sacrifice. In Exodus 12, verses 21 through 23 and 27, we see the instructions that are given. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Jumping down to verse 27, Then tell them, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who, passes, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And the people bowed down and worshipped. So the people of Israel were protected from this destroyer, um, sometimes suggested as being like an angel of death that passed over Egypt, by the sacrifice of this perfect um, lamb. And they took the blood and they put it on the doorway. So it's the perfection of that lamb that's covering their household so that they do not suffer death like the Egyptians. And so when you see this Passover and then you swivel over to Jesus, we see how God is building a really powerful connection between Jesus and the Passover sacrifice. How he's kind of leading, leaving us breadcrumbs to see that just as, the Egypt, just as the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were covered by this Passover lamb from the destroyer, so with Jesus, we are going to be delivered from death as we are covered by his blood, by his sacrifice. Now, what's kind of interesting here with Jesus and his disciples is that they're celebrating Passover early. Um, Passover isn't celebrated on the, uh, on the 14th day of Nisan. It's not celebrated on the first, first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It's celebrated on the following evening. So why is Jesus celebrating the Passover early? Well, he's celebrating the Passover early because he's going to be dead. He's not going to be around to celebrate the Passover on the actual uh, time when it's celebrated. And so it's kind of like having Christmas early. You know, sometimes we have plans that come up and we have to do a, a celebration early. That's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. He's celebrating Passover early. And what's interesting, though, as it relates to Passover, is that they're going to celebrate Passover, and then on the day that's leading up to the actual Passover meal, Jesus is going to be crucified at the same day that they're slaughtering the Passover lambs. Again, just a really strong connection that God's making here between Jesus and, and the celebration of, of Passover. And, and there might be something significant here in that we don't see any details mentioned about Jesus getting a, 
a lamb for their Passover meal. It's kind of, it'd be kind of difficult for them to do that, again, because we just said that the Passover lambs are, are sacrificed on the, on the following day. Um, and so it might be, Jesus might be kind of indicating and suggesting here that in the absence of that literal animal, that he is that Passover lamb. Um, just trying to, and of course the disciples probably aren't grasping all of this at, at that moment, but um, he, he's again pointing towards that connection. Um, now, Jesus says that his disciples are to look for a certain man who would take them to the room where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Um, and that term, a certain man, is just indicating that Matthew's not giving us all the details here, but Jesus gave them some clear instruction on, on who that man would be. And in Mark 14 and Luke 22, um, it's indicated that that man was a man who was carrying a jar of water. And they were to follow the man, and when they got to where he was going, they were to go to the owner and say um, that the teacher asked, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So could this be just something that just kind of is Jesus appoints out of the blue so that kind of like the Jedi, like a, a Jedi master, like you are going to give us this, this room for our Passover? Yeah, it could be that. It could be miraculous. But it seems more likely that Jesus had made some arrangements. Again, just showing that he knows he's not going to be there for the Passover meal. He knows that he's going to die. So as would be expected, since Jesus' word is reliable, the disciples have no trouble finding the man. And so in verses 20 to 25, we transition directly to the scene of Jesus and the disciples celebrating the Passover in this upper room. And it's here that we see Judas bubble back to the surface. Um, Jesus, in this meal, makes it clear that he knows what Judas has been up to. And he begins to make him nervous, I'm sure, when in verse 21 he says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And Judas is like, oh man, has this guy been following me or something? But Judas isn't the only one who is probably disturbed here. It says all the disciples were disturbed because they are mortified by the idea that one of them would betray them, betray Jesus, especially the thought that maybe, like, I am the one, and I don't know it. So in verse 22, they say, they go, each of them kind of takes turns, and they're like, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Like, that can't be me, right? Please. Um, and we kind of wonder, okay, what is Jesus doing here? Like, he knows that he's going to, he knows that he's going to die. He knows it's going to become be because of Judas. So why is he bringing this up? Now, well, in the Gospel of John, it's made clear why Jesus is bringing this up now. John 13, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. So you can consider this, like if all this fell out, like Judas betrayed Jesus and he goes to the cross and he dies, maybe all the disciples would have been like, this is all Judas's fault. And just like, this is just a terrible, 
conspiracy against Jesus and blah, 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 blah. What Jesus is making clear here is no. Like, I know that this is coming and I'm walking straight into it because no one's taking my life from me. I'm laying my life down. And so Judas, ironically, just becomes another instance in which Jesus' identity is revealed, that he is truly the Son of God, and that he is truly the Messiah. The disciples don't understand this now, but on the other side of things, they'll, they'll put all the pieces together and they'll, they'll see, like, wow, he really did see this coming. Now, he, he says that um, one of you, who, you know, who's dipped uh, his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The thing about that kind of uh, tip as to who it's going to be is that it's not very precise because all of them were doing that. That was just the way that you ate a meal back in those days. Um, they didn't have forks and knives. Everyone just ate with their hands. And actually, that's a common way to eat over in the Near East, even to this, even to this day. And so all that's indicating just on its on surface is that it's someone close to him that is going to betray him. And this is why the disciples are left wondering as to who it's going to be, um, except John, it seems. Because in the Gospel of John, uh, John says that Jesus told him who he was referring to. Um, so we look at John 13, verses 23 through 30. It says, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is John referring to himself, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, motioned to John, and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Judas told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So it seems that the Apostle John had some indication that something's off with Judas. But maybe even him, he wasn't totally clear on what's going on um, because it says none of them understood why Jesus told them to go and Go out and do what you're going to do quickly. Um, and it's interesting that he says that um, Satan entered into Judas. Um, in Luke 22, verse 3, it says that Satan entered Judas when he went to the high priest to betray Jesus. So it seems like there's this, there's multiple iterations in which Satan is entering into Judas's heart to just kind of push him further and further down the field to betraying Jesus. And so here he enters him again to take that final step to go to the high priest to tell him exactly where Judas, where Jesus is going to be so that they can go grab him. Um, now, Matthew shares some additional info about the words that are exchanged between Jesus and Judas more than John does in his gospel. And we see that in verse 25. Um, as they're all kind of going around the circle saying, surely you don't mean me, Jesus. I'm not going to be the one to betray you, right? Finally, he gets over to Judas. 
And he says, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And, and that's kind of an interesting difference in the way that um, he responds to Jesus, that the way that he asks him, because he calls him rabbi rather than Lord. And if you're thinking about terms like Lord is higher than rabbi, so maybe even just a slight indication here that Judas has a lower view of Jesus, um, maybe because he's not shaping up to the Messiah that he wanted him to be. Um, and so now he's just sticking around again for the payday. So he says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. Kind of uh, a bit of a, a, a response that's kind of, not, again, not giving everything away to the rest of the disciples, but kind of saying, yeah, you're it, buddy. Um, so then Jesus, again, in verse 24, indicates that he knows what's coming to him. And he also knows that things aren't real great for Judas right now. He says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. No one wants to be Judas. That's, I, I don't know about you, but that's led me to wonder you know, about Judas's role. I, I know as I've talked with some of you, some of you have had questions along this line. Like, did Judas have a choice in all this? Is he just an innocent pawn in God's plan? Well, we opened up you know, this sermon with the analogy about the spy. And in that analogy, we saw how the spy is useful to the general. But at the same time, just because the spy is useful to the general doesn't make him any less guilty, any less of a traitor. We could assume that, you know, in that analogy, that after you made your battle plan and you had your attack and the battle was all done, you wouldn't let that officer who was a spy remain in your ranks. The guy would be arrested and judged. He doesn't get to keep his position. And so I, I think we can understand that the same thing is going on here with Judas. Judas chose this. Now, we can embrace a little bit of mystery here, because some things exceed our comprehension. But God is able to take our free choices, because he knows all the decisions that we are going to make, and in his fathomless wisdom and sovereignty, he takes our free choices and weaves them together to accomplish his will. So what Judas intended for evil, God turns for good. Like the general who turns the spy for his purposes, except like ten times over. This is why we find Jesus perfectly at ease. He's not unnerved by Judas's betrayal. He knew this was how things were to go down. He knew that he was destined to die on the cross and that he was destined to rise from the dead three days later. So in anticipation of what about, was about to happen, Jesus gives his disciples the glasses they'll need to understand the significance of all of this. He reveals 
the new life that will now belong to them because they are his disciples. We see this in verses 26 through 30. Jesus begins to share in this Passover meal with his disciples and there was probably a lot of other things that he said typical to the Passover meal, but those aren't recorded because those are just common. What's recorded is recorded because it's novel. It's something, it's a new twist that Jesus is introducing here. So we see Jesus give thanks for the food, which he typically does, and that's why we, you know, if you wonder, like, why do Christians pray before they have meals and give thanks? Well, Jesus did it. That's why we take the time to do it. If Jesus took the time, we can take the time to do it. So Jesus at the Last Supper takes the time to give thanks to God for this food. And then he proceeds to present the bread in the cup. And he says that the bread represents his body and that the cup represents his blood and that is the blood of a covenant that's poured out for his disciples, and more than just his disciples, those who will also come to believe, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we've heard Jesus talk like this before in the Gospel of John. In John 6.53, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And after he says that, a bunch of his disciples said, peace out, I'm done. <laughs> like, that, that's freaking me out. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And, but like we talked about earlier about you know, Peter saying, to whom, to whom else can we turn, Lord? That, that was the same passage there. The 12 who remained expressed faith, said, I'm not, I'm not going to abandon you. And so this is what's being presented before us is Christ, his offering, the new life that he's offering, and again, this decision of, of faith. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to believe? And I think there's a captivating parallel here that we see when it comes to eating. When you think about how the scriptures begin and how it's culminated here with Jesus at the Last Supper. You think about how did humanity fall? They fell by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the serpent tempted Eve to take and eat of the fruit of the tree. And now we see all that brokenness being undone as Jesus is inviting his disciples to come to take and eat the bread, to come drink the cup. Even when we look at the cup, we can see the parallels, I think, where they took of the fruit, and here you have a cup of, of fruit, basically a cup of wine. And what Jesus says this wine represents is that it represents his blood, which is establishing a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. When we go back to the Old Testament, we see how the Old Covenant was also established by blood. When Moses was out on Mount Sinai and then he brought up the elders of the people up they made a covenant that they would obey all of God's commands. In Exodus 24, it says, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
So, God promised to be faithful to His people. And the people promised to be faithful to God, except they weren't. And because of that, they brought a curse upon themselves. Which is why a new covenant is, is given. Because the Israelites couldn't live under that covenant, nor can we. Even though we know what we're supposed to do, we don't do it. And so we see the prophet Jeremiah talk about this new covenant which was to come. Jeremiah 31, verses 33-34. through 34. It says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So we see, even going back to the prophets, hundreds of years before, we see this promise given that God would forgive our sins. That he would find a way to bring his people back to himself by establishing a new covenant. And this new covenant is established by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for a lot of us, that's a really weird concept. And it's especially weird because we're removed from the ancient context of Israel. If you know anything about Israel, before Jesus came and fulfilled the purpose of sacrifices, there was animal sacrifices. There's no longer sacrifices today in the Jewish religion because they don't have a temple to offer sacrifices in. But before that point, sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sins. And in making atonement for the sins of the people, they would take the blood of the animals that they sacrificed and they would sprinkle it all over the precinct of the temple to cleanse it of the sin that the people had introduced into their midst. And you kind of wonder, why would they do that? That seems really gross. It seems grotesque, like kind of dark. Um, that's an American kind of slant on how we understand blood because the ancient people didn't view blood as death. They viewed it as life. And so they were actually applying this blood to remove death, to remove sin. And I think we kind of get that sense too when we talk about something being the lifeblood or something. The ancient understanding was is that the life is in the blood and that's actually pretty scientifically accurate the life is in the blood and so Jesus by offering his blood is offering his life to bring us new life his blood is applied to us to bring us cleansing and we see this uh, really drawn out in the book of Hebrews and it's great to read the Old Testament and read the book of Hebrews um, to help um, clarify all this but we'll look just at Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. There it says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Now immediately you're wondering, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about when Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, he entered into the heavenly temple. So Jesus is entering into the heavenly temple. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all 
by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. In other words, the cleansing only goes skin deep, no further. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus enters into heaven, goes into the eternal temple, and he offers himself before God. I am the sacrifice once and for all. I am sufficient to cleanse all people of their sins as they, as they come to me. He is enough to ransom us so that we are forgiven. So we are saved by the perfection of Christ. He is without blemish. And we are invited into that perfection so that we are sanctified, so we actually begin to live more righteous lives day by day. Not that we're saved by that, we're not, because we're only saved by Christ, but that by being covered by his blood, it begins all in the perfection of Christ. And this is something that Jesus has actually made pretty clear throughout his ministry. And even before he could speak, it was made clear in the Gospels that Jesus came to be more than a moral teacher. Yes, he preaches great morals. But he came for so much more than just telling us, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He made it clear throughout his ministry that he came for the forgiveness of sins. When we look, when he was just a baby, in Luke 1, 76-79, it's said of him that he will give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And then we'll remember earlier in Matthew 20, verses 28, how Jesus says this pretty clearly. He says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to ransom us from our sins so that we could be delivered from death and from our condemnation. And so when we take the bread and the cup, what we're doing is making an expression of our faith in Jesus. And if we have faith in Jesus, then we have a share in his body and blood. We're covered by his ransom. Now, our understanding of the bread and the cup is that these are symbolic. They're not magical. When we share in communion here, I'm not, the bread doesn't physically, materially become the body of Christ. The cup does not materially become the blood of Christ. But there are spiritual realities that are being played out here. Um, it's just not, it's not merely symbolic. Um, Paul talks about the spiritual significance of participating in pagan feasting, and in doing so, he brings in 
the significance of our participation in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 21, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving, he's talking about the Lord's Supper here, for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So again, what Paul is telling us here is that as we come and we eat in the bread and the cup, we are actually participating in the body and blood of of Jesus Christ. We're participants in his life. We are joined to his body. And in so doing, we are actually joined to one another because we are members of one body. So never think of this as just a mere ritual. There are spiritual realities at play all around it. Now Jesus makes this one other comment here that's, that's really interesting amidst all of this. Because he's talking about offering his body, his blood. Everything's pointing to the fact that he's going to die. But he also gives his disciples some hope here that he's going to live again. You see it in verse 29. It's really easy to miss, but notice. He says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I won't drink it again until I drink it again with you. Jesus says there's going to be another day when I'm going to be eating with you at this table, when we're going to drink this cup together again. So if we're asking, well, when is that going to happen? He says in his Father's kingdom. Is he talking about um, you know, just going to heaven or something? It seems more likely that what he's talking about is when God's kingdom comes, when he returns once and for all. Luke 22, verses 18 through 20, which is a parallel passage, Luke records it this way. He says, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now we know the kingdom has come partially in the fact that Jesus is present. So if the king is around, the kingdom of God is present. But we know that there's a day when it will come in full. When Jesus returns once for all with the heavenly hosts and heaven comes down to earth and we live in a new creation. And so what he's talking about is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you're talking about the Lamb, you're talking about the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we could look at Revelation 19, but I want to take us to the Old Testament because it's prophesied there that this is where this meal will take place. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. It's so striking, I think. You have the prophets, Revelation, and they're all testifying the same. Isaiah 25, the prophet writes, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Kind of a striking thing in a Jewish text. 
talking about all peoples, not just the Jewish people, all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isn't that just a beautiful prophecy? And it sounds like it could be just taken straight out of the New Testament, but it's given hundreds of years before. And of all, all of it's being brought to completion in Christ. We're delivered from death. We're given salvation. All of this is looking forward to that day when finally, once for all, the tears are put behind us. Jesus is unveiling the salvation as he sits at the table with his disciples around him. The wonderful mystery of the ages is being revealed before their eyes. And later in life, the Apostle Peter revels in this awesome privilege that was theirs and is now ours who have lived to see God's plan of salvation unfold in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And Peter was saying that the prophets were longing to see this whole plan unfold. But what's really interesting, here's this last comment where he says, even the angels long to look into these things. Indicating that this whole plan, this whole strategy, only God knew. Even the angels longed to look into it, to understand it. And if the angels couldn't see it, and they're loyal to God, they're with God, and certainly we could say those fallen angels, Satan and his cohort, they did not see this coming. God tricks Satan. Satan thought he had his man in Judas. Everything was lined up for the Son of God to be killed. He had no clue that's exactly what God was counting on. That this was his plan all along. Satan and Judas and the high priests and the Roman authorities were all playing into this divine conspiracy that humanity would be saved through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. God shows himself to be the best kind of mastermind. The kind that can foil even the devil's schemes and deliver us from our captivity. He gives us a new covenant in Jesus so that we can sit at the feast with him which is to come. There's a secondary lesson for us in all of this. There are many terrible things that have happened in this world, that have happened in our lives, that will happen in our lives. 
things that we do not understand, mysteries that we cannot answer. We don't know why we suffer particular losses, particular deaths, why we suffer particular diseases or any other kinds of tragedies. We know the general cause. We know that all this brokenness is caused by the presence of sin in our world. But we mostly don't know why certain things happen. But we're reminded here that God knows. That there are lines of connection stringing various events together, orchestrated as one to bring forth the good that God intends. We can't pretend to understand it all, but we can understand that God's hand remains on the wheel in the midst of it all. We can understand this because we can see what He has done through Jesus. How through terrible betrayal and injustice, He was able to bring about our salvation. And we can know that God knows what it's like to live through a plan marked by pain. Because God became a man. The man, Jesus Christ. God went to the cross. So we don't understand it all. But we know that God understands it all. He has been in our shoes. He has walked the painful road. His face has been soaked by tears. He has shared in our sighings and growings. He walked through it all so that our passage through this dark valley would give way to a glorious dawn. And so we follow him through the valley because we know that he is the good shepherd, because we know that he has overcome, and that if we share in him, we will drink the fruit of the new vine new with him in our Father's kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we cannot pretend to comprehend all that You have ordained, Father. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Father. And it's incredible to see how even through the darkest evil, through the darkest betrayal, through a person like Judas, Father, you were able to take the evil that he intended and that Satan inspired, you were able to take that, Father, and turn it around for our salvation. That through Jesus Christ laying down his life for us, we would be saved. Because by him offering his life, we can now be covered by His. We can now participate in His life, which has conquered sin and death, so that now we, Father, are victors in the face of sin and death. Father, we pray that 
this promise that we have in Jesus Christ that we remember as we come before the Lord's table would just be ever before us so that we would not grow weary, so that we would not despair in the face of evil, the kind of evil that we see in Judas' father, but that we would maintain faith and that our hope would be preserved because we've seen what you've done through Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.